The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 7, 14 through 23. The word of God speaks to us like this. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and had left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, evil things, come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. God. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Thank you, Cindy. Let me just say that if you have seen the old SNL skit, uh, Debbie Downer, you can sympathize with my spot right now, which is building, Labor Day, defilement. Wow. Hey, hey, but what I actually want to do is I want to step into this with a lot of hope because actually there's a lot of things in here that I, that I think often we try to turn a blind eye towards or try not to step into because of the, it, it can lead to discomfort. And yet there's a lot of hope in this passage. there's a lot of hope in what we're actually going to be talking about today. And so I want us to step into that. Um, If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to get to know you. Uh, And if you're a guest here, uh, we're really glad you're here. Uh, Let me also say specifically, if you're not a Christian here, I just want to say thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Uh, This is a place that is never going to push people that don't agree with us on all these positions off, uh, keep at arm's length. But rather, this is a place where if you have questions, if you have concerns, if you have, you want to process anything, um, this is a place to do it. And so I'm really glad you're here, and I hope that what we talk about today is actually going to be really helpful for you uh, as it's helpful for all of us. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me because I feel like I have an uphill battle uh, leading into this topic uh, today. And so, God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our hearts? Where where we may want to uh, turn uh, an eye away from things because of their discomfort would you actually would you actually would you actually draw us near to you as we step into a, a, a heavy topic God would you would you point us to the hope that you provide the hope of your gospel we pray in Jesus name amen so I have one question to get us started with this morning what is wrong with us and by us I mean all of us like Is it just me or does the world seem insane right now? And you're like, no, it doesn't. Well, maybe you're the insane one. (laughs) Like right now, it just feels like everybody is angry about everything, agitated about everything, and they think they're right about everything, but clearly they're wrong, right? But, But as much as that we may feel that, let's just own that. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't ask that question to some degree or another. Why? 
like there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with us. That, 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 that's not supposed to look like this. Work this way. Be like this. And it's not just what's going on out there. It's what's going on inside of our own souls, right? Like we may ask the question, what's wrong with the world? But then all we got to do is take like five seconds, stop, think about it and realize, hey, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my heart? What's, what's, what's wrong with me? Why is it that I can never be as good as I want to be? Why is it that I can never perform the way I want to perform? This is something that we all wrestle with. Something we all wrestle with. Uh, my wife and I really enjoyed watching um, a show called The Good Place together. It was a NBC show. Uh, if, you, if you've seen it, it was, it was great. It was so well done. Uh, in, this, in, this, uh, in this story, um, there are some people that show up in what they call the good place after death, uh, and they think they're in heaven, except for some of them realize they don't belong in heaven because they know what it was like when they were on earth. And so they're like, there's some big mistake, but don't tell anybody because we might get thrown to the other place. And so there's this, it's a, it's a comedy, but they do incredible exploration. One of the, one of the, um, one of the, the characters is an, was an ethicist, uh, before he died. And so he's talking about um, Kant and all, all these ethicists over centuries and what philosophy says about what's good and what's not good. And, and they're trying to figure out actually how to be good so that this, these, some of these characters can stay in the good place. Well, what comes out later was that they actually were never in the good place to begin with. It was a cruel joke. It was a cruel joke. They were actually in the bad place and they were being tortured in various ways. They were being pitted against each other in various ways. And so they begin this exploration of trying to understand what's going on, what's going on. And here's what they, the, the grand crescendo at the end of the story is, you know what's wrong right now? The system. The system is wrong. It's not actually me. It's the system. Wah, wah. It was a beautiful TV show exploration of these themes that completely swung and missed. It missed answering the question, what's wrong with us? In all of its, in our questioning, we're asking this question of what's going on that's wrong. And I think sometimes we're prone to want to ignore the question because it forces us into uncomfortable places. It forces us to confront things in our own souls and around us. But I, I want to I ask all of us to lean in on this. I want us to all lean in on this. Because I think this is, all, this is the, what we're talking about today. There's nobody immune from what Jesus is going to lead us to in this passage. The ethicist Oliver O'Donovan, in his, in his uh, amazing book, Resurrection and Moral Order, talks about uh, ethics and, and the, the tendency for us to, to kind of abstract out Christian ethics from the gospel itself. To abstract what it means to be good from the gospel itself. And he says, if you do that, if you separate those two pieces, you're going to find yourself in one of two, in one of two uh, predicaments. The first is you're going to find yourself in mere moralism. Mere moralism. What is moralism? Moralism is, is this way in which it's, kind of, it's legalistic. It's that if, if I can create a list of right and wrong things to do on my checklist, and I do the right things and don't do the wrong things, then I'm moral. We're, we're going to find ourselves in the moralism. Or we're going to find ourselves in what he calls antinomianism. That's a weird word. Antinomianism. 
which essentially means this, it's a rejection of any ultimate law. That, that ultimately there is no law coming in from the outside. I'm free to do whatever I want. Nobody can tell me what I have to do. Nobody gets to do that. I get to define what's right and what's wrong for me. So if we separate Christian morality, Christian ethics from the gospel, we end up in one of these two camps. This is exactly what this text is talking about. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look, we're going to look at the passage before what Cindy just read, and then we're going to read, we're going to, we're going to end up in the text that she read to actually see what Jesus is trying to teach us in this passage and to hear from him an invitation to the gospel again. Is that right? Is that good? Let's look at this. Mark 7, starting in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees had gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Like, that's weird. You're washing dining couches. I hope they weren't made out of suede. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites? As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now let's back up for just a second and ask where this fits in this narrative. If you were here last week, we talked about uh, Jesus uh, healing. The, last, the, the section right before this is Jesus was going around um, the Galilee continuing to heal and bring freedom. We heard stories, Chad preached a couple weeks ago about one of the stories in which a woman with an issue of blood that had been going on for years and years and years and years had meant that she was perpetually in the Israelite system, perpetually unclean, ritually. And she could never go into any kind of religious service because she was perpetually unclean. And God, Jesus heals her so that she becomes clean. And what he's doing is he's going around and he's correcting things that are broken. He's making people that were not whole, whole. He's bringing healing. He's teaching. And in the midst of this, the Pharisees get really upset because Jesus isn't doing the, way, the things the way they do them. He's not following all the rules. He's not doing all the laws. Now, these are not laws that were in the Old Testament that God had given Israel. Let's just be very clear. They weren't saying, hey, you're not doing the thing that God told us to do. These were rules that they created to help them keep God's law. In other words, they didn't get enough of, of the rules from God. They decided to create a few more. They, they created these laws, these additional rules, as a way of trying to make sure they could stay clean to make sure that they could stay in good graces with Yahweh. And this actually came from a good heart because Leviticus 11, 44 and 45 say this, for I am the Lord, your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You should not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. That's an awesome description for lots of things. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You see, it actually wasn't a bad thing that they were trying to obey the law of God. It wasn't a bad thing that they were trying to stay holy. 
There was, there was good motives driving to these additional rules that were created. But what they had missed was that Jesus himself was bringing real cleansing while they were bringing these superficial cleansing. That, that ultimately they were upset that Jesus was dealing with the reality on the ground and they were dealing with this list of rules. They somehow had gotten so caught up in their particulars that they missed what Jesus was actually doing. You see, what started as a good motivation, let's stay pure, let's be holy, for God is holy, turned into a system that they could game. They found a way to look good without being good. They, they found a way, they, they, they found a process that they could manipulate. They, they found a performance that they could perfect. And it just simply gave cover for their hearts to do whatever they wanted to do. Now, I'd like to say that this was just them, but we do this all the time, don't we? Don't we? We create some list of, uh, of extra rules, a, a checklist to try to present ourselves as different than we are. That if I can keep this list of good things, then maybe I can let a couple of them slide over here. That we lead into moralism thinking that the reason that I'm good is because I do good things. I tend to behave. That's what makes me good. But in reality, we end up doing the same thing the Pharisees did. Now, we live in a world in which there's a lot of competition on the moral claims, or they're not. <laughs> Who's right? Is Islam right in what they claim about the good? Is Christianity good? Is, is Christianity right? Is it that the Republicans have the right view of everything or the Democrats? Who's right on these pieces? And in our conversations about what the good is, we start, we move from asking who's correct or whose morality to what is morality anyway. You see, in our day, moralism has been in many, is still in some circles the predominant issue. But for many of us, the pendulum has swung to the other side where we say, you can't tell me what to do. We swing away from Here's my list, look at how clean and moral I am, to I'll do what I want to do, thank you very much. Which is exactly what happens in this text as well. Look at the next couple of verses. Mark 7, starting in verse 8. He's, Jesus says, you, you leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother shall or must surely die. But I say to you, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you will no longer permit him to do anything to, for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. See, what he's telling is he's giving them one example of many of the ways in which they've actually swung over to, you can't tell me what to do. And this is the way it went. In the Old Testament law, what were they commanded to do? They were commanded to honor and respect their parents. Honor and respect your father and your mother. 
Now, this wasn't just simply mean that you were supposed to, as a kid, while you were in the home with your kid or with your parents, you're supposed to obey them. That's part of it. It wasn't just that you don't speak in a disrespectful tone, but that's part of it. It went beyond that, that there was a, an honor that was due until death, that you were to care for them and to make sure that they were cared for. But see, what had happened was, because we didn't want to do that, we found a clever way to put a cover over the top of it and make it look like we were good by taking all the things that we should have given to our parents and give them to God and keep them from our parents. And Jesus says, this is an example of many of the ways in which you, you, you do a, a quote-unquote good thing to try to cover up a complete rejection of the command of God. Complete rejection of the command of God. You see, it's the opposite of moralism. It's not doing everything you can to keep all the rules. It's you can't tell me what to do and I'm going to put a nice little face on front of it. This may look like they were trying to be moral, but actually they were trying to completely reject the law. He says here that they rejected the law to establish their traditions. For them, they had certain traditions. I, I, I want to sing Fiddler on the Roof song, but I won't. I will spare you. But, that, but the reality of what's going on in that musical is this, that there was these traditions that they begin to hold with such value. They grip tight to them and maybe let the actual commandments of God slip. And that may have been what it looked like inside of the Jewish homes in this time, but how do we do that? We do this all the time. Our tradition, some in our day would say, there is no such thing as sin. And so what we say is just, just be loving, just love somebody, just let them be happy, you be happy, and actually reject the very things that God has called us to it. We do this kind of performance morality. We reject things that, that scripture gives us as irrelevant. That's an antiquated thing. Doesn't, belong, doesn't mean anything to us anymore. We pretend to have an ethic that we actually have no foundation for. You see, guys, this isn't what other people do. This is what we do. I hear the command of God of how to care for those that are needy or care for those that, are, uh, that, are, that have been pushed outside, but I justify my lack of doing that behind my political convictions. Or maybe I hear a command that's just so hard, I don't want to do it, and so I just put a nice smile on and treat somebody like I'm kind to them while not being kind to them. I pretend to love without loving. We do this kind of stuff all the time. We put a face on things, make it seem like we're actually doing the right thing. And we're not. We'll hide behind political ideology. We'll hide behind our own just tendencies. But there's something else here that the text is going to call us to reckon with. And this is not going to leave any of us untouched. This is what Jesus says, continuing on. This is a passage that Cindy read a second ago, Mark 7, starting in verse 14. Jesus shows us something different between moralism and this rejection of the law. He says, he called the people to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
And when they had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Listen to this. For from within, out of the very heart of man come evil thoughts. I hit a button and I lost my place in my notes. There we go. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see, Jesus is pointing us to the fact that ultimately what's wrong with us is not that we're just not good enough with the system. And what's wrong with us is not the system itself, that it's too repressive, that it's too antiquated, that it's too old. That what's wrong with us is us. I can't point the finger at other things. What's wrong is me. He's pointing out that it's not simply the media that I consume, the friends that I put myself around with, the influences that, that, that I had as a child. It's not the foods I consume, the, the beverages I, I drink. It's not, it's not that that defiles me. It's what comes out of my own heart. Now, that's a truth we don't want to own, is it? I don't, I don't want that to be true. I want to blame somebody else. I want to point the finger somewhere else. But what Jesus is saying here is stop pointing the finger out there and, and look. Look at what's going on inside. This is what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 8. Jesus is teaching. And as he's teaching, he says, um, I, I know you've heard the law say, don't murder. We said, I want to tell you, don't hate. Because if you hate your brother, you have murdered him in your heart. Jesus says, I know you know the law that says, do not commit adultery. But I, I say this, do not lust or desire. For to, to lust is the same as adultery. What Jesus is saying is, it's not just what we do, it's who we are. And so often we don't want to face this because it makes us so uncomfortable and we hear the voice of shame screaming in our ears. But we have to recognize that our problem is not our performance. It's our hearts. Our day and age doesn't like the word sin, does it? We don't like the word sin. Sounds icky. Sounds grotesque. Sounds like somebody else's problem. But scripture won't back away from it. You see, scripture will talk about sin as being our problem because it is. And the reason that we need the word of God speaking to us is there are things that if it's not for the, what the Bible says, we would close our ears and disbelieve and 
also just continue to be caught up in the very thing that's breaking us. See, the Bible would tell us that sin is our enemy and depravity is our problem. That down at a deep soul, the reason we sin is that our hearts are broken and depraved. You see, the Bible never pulls away from that call towards holiness. We read that in Leviticus a while ago, but you read this in 1 John, you read this all over through the, through the New Testament. There's this, continue. Peter will say this, like, continue to be holy for God is holy. God didn't go, I tried that holiness thing, it was just too hard for everybody, so now I'm just gonna tell everybody, chill out. No, actually, holiness is still the, still the command. The gospel doesn't get rid of the call to holiness but it does empower it. It doesn't get rid of it, but it does empower our pursuit of holiness. But here's a question I have for you. Do we actually believe this? Do we actually believe this? Do we actually believe that sin is coming, sin is not here because of what somebody has done to me, but because of I'm sinful? Do we actually believe that deep down, the problem is not out there, it's in here? And I think sometimes we'll give mental assent to this, and then we try to dart our eyes from the reality of it. What happens, though, if instead of running from that truth, we actually came in and reckoned with it? The good news of the gospel cannot be good news if this isn't true. The good news is good because this is reality as well. You see, we, we, when we ask the question, where is our hope? If we recognize that we're sinful, that we're broken, where is our hope? It's not in a fresh start. My hope is not, and I just need a little bit of help from the Holy Spirit or from a moral textbook or from a good friend. I don't, I don't just need a better system. I don't just need more discipline. I need something else. I need the gospel. I need the good news that God does not take me in my sin as some kind of effort for me to clean myself up and said, if I can get myself clean enough, then I get to be welcomed into his presence. His good news is, I'll clean you. I will make you clean. I will change your heart. The gospel message is not behavior modification, it's heart transformation. I can never, I can never just behave enough. I need a new heart. Because how often have we done a good thing, it looks like good to somebody outside, but inside, the hatred, the anger was swirling in our own souls. And even if the other person didn't see it, it was eating us up from the inside. What we need is a new heart. What we need are not better influences. We need the gospel. That only the gospel will bring, bring us to holiness and only the gospel can make us pure. 
We need the full gospel as well, the whole gospel, the whole good news of who Jesus is. You see, often in Christian circles, we talk about the death of Jesus, and rightly so. Because what happened on the cross is that Jesus was killed for our sin, that he took our sin on himself and died in our place. The sin that was killing us and bringing death to us, Jesus took the cross and swallowed up the death that we deserved. That's beautiful. That he took our sin from us, making us clean while he paid the print. It's a beautiful truth. But I don't just need the death of Jesus. I need the resurrection of Jesus. I mentioned Oliver Donovan at the beginning of, of this. He continues on in this uh, amazingly dense and laborious read. It's a beautiful book, hard to read. I had tried to pull out some quotes and they just, he's just not a good writer. Good thinker, bad writer. But what he said is this, without the resurrection, there's no hope because what you need is new life. And if Jesus doesn't have new life in himself, he doesn't have new life to give. If your heart's going to be made new, it's only going to be made new because of the resurrection. I need the death of Christ, yes. I need the resurrection of Christ, but I also need the Holy Spirit that he sends, the good news that we are not left alone, that the Holy Spirit walks with me. That as my desperate heart, desperate and unclean heart comes up against your desperate and unclean heart, that apart from the Holy Spirit, where there's nothing prone, to, there's nothing that's going to happen but disaster, but I need him to change both of us. To him to lead us into wholeness, to lead us into life. See, the hope of this is, if the problem is my heart, the hope is what God has already promised in the gospel is a new heart. He doesn't leave us alone to try to figure it out. He actually meets us in the most desperate place we find ourselves in. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, he, Jesus, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we don't, perform, we, don't, we, don't, we don't clean ourselves up. If we dismiss this gospel, we're, gonna have to, we're, gonna, we're either going to try to perform, we're going to continue to try to do all the right things to try to cover up our shame. We're going we're gonna to just work our tail off trying to be better. We're going to work our tail off to present this, this sense of goodness to the world so that they think we're good when we know that we're not. We're going to try to cover up our sin or, or we're going to shrug. Jesus covered it, right? What's the big deal? Jesus has cleansed me. Why do I got to really do anything? I thought he was the one that cleansed me. Why do I have to work for it? Both of those are rejections of this gospel. Because as we move towards resting in this gospel, here's what this is going to look like. We're going to trust God at his word, that the problem is not out there, that the problem is here. And we're going to trust him that his law for us, his, his command for us is actually for our good, not for our, for, our, for our bad. It's for our good. 
it's also gonna lead us to pursue holiness. God never stops saying, be holy for I am holy. I'm not gonna be able to perfect it. I'm not gonna be able to nail it. But I lean in. I pursue. I try. I strive. Not on my own strength. But I lean in towards holiness. And when I fail, I repent. Martin Luther's famous for saying that the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. All of us blow it. I don't, I don't know what's been rolling through in the back of your mind, what film you've been watching as we've been talking today, but I can almost guarantee you as soon as we start taking, talking about sin and you start taking it seriously, you're thinking of a few examples in the very recent past. Let's repent. Let's own it. And then let's strive in hope as we wait. Strive in hope as we wait. Wait for what? Wait for the day in which God fully transforms our hearts and our world and brings us into a new place where sin is still not raging in our souls. We're going to lean in. We're going to pursue holiness. We're going to strive towards it. But we're going to do it while we wait in hope. Because Jesus is at work in my heart, but that work's not done yet. That work's not done yet. No one in this room has arrived. No one in this room has arrived. What this text calls all of us to, though, is to stop, to reflect, to confess and admit our failures and to lean into this incredible grace that I don't have to clean myself up because he has cleansed me. That I don't have to somehow make my heart better. He gives me a new heart. That's not up to me alone. It's I receive the grace of God by what Jesus has done. I receive the grace of God in his spirit that is with me and I receive the grace of God in this community that we can walk towards repentance together. And in that we have hope, friends. We have failed each other and we will fail each other again. We have sinned and we will sin again. But the gospel message calls us back to a holy God to receive from him the new heart that he promised to give us. Will you pray with me?